Welcome back to CodingCat.dev, where we give you cats the freshest dose of dev snacks. Here is Alex Patterson and Brittany Postma. This episode brought to you by Storyblock. Build anything and publish everywhere. What up, peeps? Today on the show, we have Thomas. See how I try to elongate the Thomas? <laughs> Not just hi, Thomas. Hi. Yeah. So, a quick backstory. You and I were working together at AppRite. That's how I got to know you. And the last time I saw you in person was in Portugal. Yeah, and no, it was in Serbia. It was in Serbia, you're right. Yeah. And uh, in Portugal. I have a super fun story about this too. So we're in Serbia um, and we did this this uh, escape room. Thomas, <laughs> tell, us, tell us about your escape room that you did. I mean, my escape room was kind of exciting, but at the same time, it was pretty hard. Like, I never did too many escape rooms. That was my second, like, and it's still my second. Uh, I mean, my my last escape room. And it was kind of hard. At the end, we had like 10 seconds left or something like that, but we actually made it. Uh, but it was a pretty fun experience, like team building experience. Like, it was my first time meeting most of the team not everyone and it was in general a fun experience it was also kind of scary it was like horror team and pretty dark and stuff like that yeah. but i to that kind of stuff so it was freaky for me because coming from the states to serbia was kind of interesting first of all and then we went down a, a like a i won't call it a dark alley but kind of an alley to a sketchy area that we had to go into a room and escape out of it was like this is my first escape room ever i'm like do we get locked in forever if we can't get out but it was it was pretty amazing um you know trying to like open the locks and like get into different rooms and stuff like that and it it got me so hooked i i've done every vacation that we go on i look for a new escape room to go do now so oh, i love it cool. i did one to... in Grand rapids but i've only done one i keep you ever go to, if you ever go to amsterdam the escape room I did there was surreal. It's called Sherlocked. I mean, they have uh, two or three escape rooms, but the company is called Sherlocked. And it's pretty amazing, like <laughs> moving walls kind of stuff. Oh, wow. I love puzzles and stuff, but if you scare me, I'm out. Like, I don't want a haunted house like style escape yeah. room. I don't, I don't think any of them ever scared us uh, that okay. I've been to, but they're i did in our last one we got blindfolded and handcuffed in the room nope and that's how you started <laughs> I like so, that. so we had to like i thought i'm sitting there like blindfolded and i thought uh you had to like leave the blindfold on and like figure a way out and everyone's like looking at me they're like take your blindfold off what are you doing <laughs> How are you going to solve puzzles, blindfolded? <laughs> we got a little bit of a slow start on that one, but we almost oh, finished. We were very close to finishing on that one. Anyways, Thomas, you are like a front-end guru. Do you want to tell us kind of how you got started in um, the space and just how you got kind of into development in general? Yeah, so I actually started developing uh, like coding in general when I was 16 years old. I was in high school and I figured I probably wanted to do something like computer science for college. 
And so um, I just started like searching programming tutorials and just wanted to know how to code. Eventually I went into Reddit and found a Python book and started learning Python actually uh, for a long time. Wow. I did, uh, did quite a lot of Python, some automation stuff. Um, and I really liked it and eventually went to college. And in college, before I dropped out, I um, we were we had some assignments and stuff like that. And we normally did like sites or web apps and stuff like that. But most of the people didn't want to do anything related to front end. Like CSS, get that out of here, right? And I was the same. But at the same time, I always liked doing stuff that looked kind of nice. I'm like, this can look better. Let's make something that's more presentable. And so I had to get into CSS and all the front end stuff. And I actually quite liked it. And fast forward a little bit later, like end of my first year of college, I also got uh, contacted by this company uh, about a possible internship offer. I'm like, okay, I have uh, no idea how to actually do a proper frame uh, front end challenge that they gave me. Just quickly uh, got a JS framework and started trying to learn it. It was Vue. And did my challenge, passed the internship, started doing React, and then I just been hopping like front-end jobs and then front-end side projects and so on and so forth. Really got into front-end. I really, really love it. I also do some back-end here and then, but front-end is where my passion is at. And yeah, currently, as you said, I'm at AppRite doing front-end stuff, also doing some pretty pages there. And that's it. So you work for App right now. Are you doing more of the front end stuff there? Or are you working with Pink and their design system? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So Pink Design was actually my first, I'd say, release that I, I've been a part of uh, when I joined AppRite. Uh, super excited to have that uh, launched. Uh, and yeah, I was a part of that. I'm also a part of doing the console part of things. So like when you spin up an AppRite instance or when you're on AppRite's uh, closed beta stuff, the console that you see there, which is powered by Salt, um, is also something I'm a part of. Uh, and yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really cool. Um, when when you started, and I'm forgetting like time-wise, was that project already underway or were you part of the initiation of Pink? I mean, Pink Design was, we already had this like CSS thing uh, used internally. Pink Design mm -hmm. was kind of just a way of like making it open source. So it was definitely already a thing. Um, but the actual docs and the actual open sourcing of it it was it was starting to get underway, if I'm correct. Uh, there wasn't like too many stuff uh, yet done, but it was definitely already starting with the actual doc side and whatnot. And did that did that help like motivate you to make kind of like a component framework on your own, or was this always kind of built in? Like I want to do my own thing. This is just helping. I mean, it does kind of help. I mean, being NetRite in general, I think helped me a lot about being more open to doing open source stuff. Okay. I always want like doing my small projects and like I have a GitHub full of public repositories, but they're not like polished. They're not normally, I don't know, I, I didn't devote them that much. But being at that right 
helped me like change my mindset a little bit, change my, like, huh, maybe I should try and push and I don't know, put it on Reddit, put it on Twitter, put, uh, put my open source stuff out there, polish it a little bit. And doing Pink, yeah, it totally helped, especially because not only it's quite similar uh, to what I'm doing now, my component library, um, like it's also something front-end uh, front library, but it's also at the same time that I'm really happy with what we did at Pink, say at the same time, I, I would really like to do something of my own, you know, that I thought of about the idea or that I can like do some uh, some of my own decisions. I definitely can do that at Big Design. AppRight is uh, quite great at like letting everyone voice their own opinions, but it's kind of different at the same time. Yeah, it's like not your own thing. And I don't know if we've really said like what the title of this episode is, but Thomas is the creator of, is it Radix or Radix? It's Radix, I think. Radix. <laughs> Radix. <laughs> I, think yeah. I say so I think because Radix Felt is a part of Radix UI, which is not mine. Um, oh, okay. So, yeah, yeah. So, so I think it's called Radix. Yeah. So what is, was your inspiration? What was like just like wanting to get into open source? I get that. But like why a component library? Why Svelte? What were the reasons for creating those two things? Yeah, so why I think it's more like why Radix specifically. Radix is something I already used in previous personal projects and previous work projects to like at previous companies and it's so valuable. And I think that Svelte, which is a framework that uh, I love using, I use it at AppRite, I use it also for 99% of my personal projects. Like Svelte, at the same time, it's great. It's still lacking in some ecosystem tools. There are some great, uh, there is some great stuff out there. For example, Skeleton and stuff like that. But in terms of unstyled, accessible, headless component libraries, which is what Radix is, meaning components that you can just grab, they don't have any styles at all, and you can just make them your own. I think that Svelte is really lacking at that. There are some alternative, uh, some solutions here and there, but. I think there is still upcoming, there's still being built, and is, I want to be a part of that. Is felt headless UI still being maintained or is that not maintained anymore? That's the only one that I knew of. Yeah, I think, I don't know if it's still being maintained. I looked into it, but I'm not sure. But there are it two doesn't have a very large component library either. I think there's maybe 10 here. Yeah, That's there's also that. I'm sorry, what? SpeltUI.org, is that the one? Spelt-headlessui.gos.io is gotcha. the website. There are two, actually, I think, Spelt Headless UI ports uh, that I've seen. They, but they are both pretty good. But yeah, at the same time, Headless UI doesn't have this amount of components Radix has. And I think it's more tailored to Tailwind, which I like. I, I'm using Tailwind a lot on Radix Spelt, but uh, I like the idea of like you don't need Tailwind. I also don't think you do need Tailwind on Stop Headless UI though. Yeah, can you explain like what a headless UI means too and what these headless components allow you to do? Yeah, sure. So basically a headless component is a bit different than normal components in the sense that let's say you get a, a component library like Bootstrap or Material UI. They already come with their own styles that's uh, come from their design system. But let's say, no, I want something that is for my own design system or my own look, right? Let's say we want to do something for Code Recap that, but I don't want to do 
a select component all on my own. I don't want to do a modal component all on my own because it's hard. It's hard to make it accessible. It's hard to do all the logic and stuff like that. So Radix or any other headless UI component library does exactly that. They have the building blocks. They normally separate the components into multiple subcomponents, and then you can style and position them in your HTML markup any way you want. Uh, if you literally don't put any style, they're going to come with default HTML browser styles shit. That makes sense. So there's no like real design system behind them. It's just the pure component and you can style it however you need for your system. Exactly, exactly. Nice. Well, let's, let's take a quick break um, to thank our sponsors. But when we come back, let's dive into Radix and, and break it down a little more. How in the world could I forget about this? There's no need to freak out. We have Storyblock. Robert, you're right. But we still need a path. Okay, how much time do we have left until the launch? 24 hours. Okay, let's go. ready to publish. So let's get this baby online. Thank you, Storyblock. Really appreciate your sponsorship and all the backing you do for us. There's some more behind the scenes that you do now, too. So Thomas, Radix felt. I'll bring up the site. Let's break this down for people a little more. That's not the right button at all. <laughs> Um, so when we're, when we're talking about this, ignore the red background, it's this component right here that we're talking about. And I, I'm curious, generally, genuinely, um, when you were talking about before, without the theming and stuff like that, how do you actually like go about making these things and not put, like, I can't live in a colorless world, I guess. How does that work? How are you creating stuff like that? Uh, how I'm creating the actual components. Yeah, I'd love to hear like how you make the actual components. Um, maybe we can jump into GitHub and look at the code, but like conceptually as well, when you're just like, are you in black and white when you're thinking about these things and like grays and you're like, there's a component, style it however you want. I mean, what's your process like? Yeah, what's your process? Yeah. This, I think the process is quite different just because this is a part. So mainly what I do uh, when parting these components over is I just like grab the Radix UI source code. I mean, I already know how it looks like, more or less. And then I take a deep dive into their code and see how it's processed. I also want to make a really similar API while doing like some differences because I can translate React code to Svelte code like one, uh, one to one, right? Yeah. So. This helps a lot in the process, but at the same time, in the future, I do want to include some components that I miss. Uh, for example, Radix UI, the original one, doesn't have a combo box, an autocomplete component, and I really, really miss that, and I do want to include it. So the way I would normally think about it, instead of thinking too much about styles, uh, we start to think about like what are the actual uh, segments that you you need, for example, uh, a select has a lot of stuff. It has the input box, then it has the items. It also has like a little check 
for that item, it has the box that contains all the items, which is uh, positioned separately. So you start to think about all the building blocks of that component and then the logic that goes behind it. How I'm going to get the value from the, the roots of the component to the individual items, how I'm going to do keyboard navigation, all that stuff. So you start to actually think about the minute stuff. The atoms. We're talking yeah, about atomic exactly. design here. Yeah. So like taking those little individual pieces that make up the molecules and the organisms, and then those make up your templates and your pages. And it's like each little building block is a single piece, but you have to think about that structure and how all of those go together to make a component. And I think it is much easier when you have like a design system you're kind of building off of. You already have the designs there. And I'm doing a similar thing at work where I have designers that have a UI kit. And so we have the components in Figma and I just look at those and I'm able to build off of that structure. Yeah, for little, sure. A uh, little self-promotion here, but if you go to Coding Cat, I have a uh, kind of the atoms, molecules, those things uh, yeah. broken down out here. This is specific with web components, but uh, it's a good read. Tell me, yeah. tell me what's wrong with it. And Atomic Design by Brad Frost is completely free too. So that's like just a short read also. It's that's, really that's good, like principles of design in general. That's amazing. Yeah, I really like the Atomic stuff. Normally in personal projects, what I do is kind of what I have like, um, instead of calling it atoms and molecules, sometimes I call it like UI and then components where you are like the more simple stuff like a button and then components are like stuff that contains a button and other UI elements, which is basically atomic design, right? Yeah, I mean, at, at the end of the day, it's it's basically taking stuff down to its lowest part and then from there kind of building Lego blocks on top of things as you build them up at the very yeah. core basic side of that principle, right? Yeah, very nice. But, but there is one trouble, uh, troublesome part uh, about when uh, you're creating this stuff. Since to actually create the component and see it and test it out, you need to create a bunch of subcomponents that rely on each other. It's kind of hard when you're starting like a new component. Like the work you have to do until you can visualize and play around with it a bit. Sometimes it's it's a lot of work. Sometimes yeah, you get a bit lost. Yeah, I was going to ask you like how you decide to which component to build, but I think you probably just base that off Radix UI. Do you have like a priority list of which ones you wanted first? And like an icon is kind of a base atom and you need that in a lot of other components. So do you have like an icon component that you use and do you pull from like an icon library? Mm -hmm. So the icon actually uh, specifically uh, Radix, for example, doesn't have, I mean, they have Radix icons, but the, the icons are just for, for the docs page, right? So we don't actually export any icons component. But what I do is initially I just did the ones that looked easier to me, to be honest, and more to, to get in the flow and understand the process. But then, for example, there are a bunch of components that depend on an internal component called Popper, kind of like the Popper library, right? just positioning stuff, floating Tool elements. Tips, right? Yeah, stuff like that. The select also depends on it. Um, a lot of stuff depends on it. Tooltips, hover cards, navigation menu. Uh, so before we do that components, uh, then yeah, Popper was prioritized before that. 
but barring that, no priority. Um, I only prioritize like if a user says, huh, I would really like to use this library, but it's missing this component, like the select component. A user in, in our Discord uh, community said, huh, I would really like the select component. It's the only thing stopping me from using it. So I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do the select component next. And that's what I'm doing. Awesome. Yeah, that makes perfect sense too. I did a similar thing where some of them were needed by people. Some were just, I wanted to make sure that this was the flow that I wanted for the process and the work. And that, that makes a lot of sense. And you've got a list that you're building out here. Do you have like a grand vision of how many components it's going to end up being? Yeah, I mean, at first it's going to be like all the Radix components. I can, if I go to the GitHub and uh, go to my GitHub issues and filter out by component, I can see how many are left. Let me actually see that. But it's, I don't know, it's like 20 or 30 or something like that. But I do want to have more, which I don't know if it's like, uh, I, I don't know if it's, I'm, how can I say this? I'm sabotaging myself maybe <laughs> because it's a lot of work, but at the same time, I'm excited. So yeah, there are still 19 components left to do. Okay. Yeah. Um, but it's exciting at the same time. And uh, we already have more than 10 components. So yeah, it's going to be like 30 components. Uh, okay. Wow. That's really cool. Yeah. That's going to be quite the library once it's all built and ready. But it's nice. That is one thing that's really been lacking in the Svelte space for a while, I think, is having good accessible components. And like you mentioned, Skeleton earlier, they're doing a great job, but it is themed. You can customize your theme and use that however you want. But it's nice to have like a headless option to just pull in and use and know that you're going to have those accessible components. So we appreciate that work. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. I have some, I have some technical right. questions that I've never, uh, never seen before, and I'm embarrassed to almost ask on there, but I'm, I gotta, I've gotta know. Um, Hi again. Clicking the wrong button all day long. Uh, I haven't seen the syntax on components in Svelte with the like dot root going on oh, yeah. here. How does, yeah, how does that work? I mean, this yeah, normally this is more like a React thing. But yeah. the way this yeah. works is actually pretty simple. I just, so you have the root.svelte file and the item and headers file file. And then I just create an index.ts file or JavaScript, mm -hmm. whatever. And then I just export const accordion equals, and then I just put the 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 components below. So, like so it's root. an object. It's an object, yeah. The components. Gotcha. That makes yeah, sense. Exactly. Exactly. Very cool. Yeah, I think I've I've been doing a lot um, with Black Cat UI where we're exposing out like the slots throughout these. So mm -hmm. um, instead of like doing like roots or, or like items, probably even better example, we would like slot that in instead. But this is mm -hmm. this is really it interesting. It depends on the need. And I've found this like in a lot of my components. So some people would put a prop there where you just have like a label on something and that prop is the label and there's no slot but then i would go to the code and they're using it with like multiple things multiple elements and i'm like that can't just be a label you can't just have text there you need the structure and the html markup so you yeah. you really have to do it on a case-by-case -case basis on the component and how it's especially if you're doing it for something that's already being used but yeah interesting and so let's let's talk for people that are going to use this package um when they're passing in like this props object uh, i notice you have like a type of accordion what's 
why like i i see this has got like a to-do label on it but um yeah. like why is this coming in this way into um to be honest this is more of like uh, uh also can we show like a carton is not the best example especially okay. that to do it's a more complicated one you can go to collapsible maybe which is really similar sweet yeah you see that it's much simpler so this prop object is mostly because this is the way we use it inside our docs so this component you see uh, uh, up there, it's in an example.svelte file. And the code you see below is that example.svelte file. So this is how we actually put it inside the docs. But gotcha. if you wanted, for example, to have your own collapsible component built on top um, of uh, Red Svelte's collapsible component, you could use that example.svelte file, and you would only export a single prop called props object. It's not the best. Normally, you would probably want, no, I want an open prop, I want a disabled prop, and that's how you would do it. Yeah. This is just, the way it is now, it's just like, this is how we do it inside our docs, but, uh, and it's easier for us to just, sh uh, to just export the code. But gotcha. later on, I do want to make the documentation a little bit better so you can show a more real-world use case. So basically, all of the props are wrapped up in a TypeScript. You have an object, and you just have to drill down to each yeah. prop. So down in the yeah. bottom, we see props object dot root dot open. So yeah. there's so this kind of like tiered there, right? Exactly. Also, uh, this was also the uh, the reason we did this prop uh, props object is so we can have like a storybook like. Uh, preview on the doc. So if you click on open, it's actually going to modify the example prop. So if you click on open, it's going to open the collapsible. So that's pretty cool. Okay, so I need to know exactly how you're doing this <laughs> right now so I can copy this. Have, you, have both of you heard of um, the Sveld at all? I'm um, using oh, no. Sveld. Um, but I'm nice. running into some interesting things with the syntax you have to use, the question mark raw. Uh, um, Veep does not like to build that for some reason, like on Netlify. Mm. I, I felt builds on Netlify with that. Mm, it's working great on Vercel. We might have to dig into it. <laughs> <laughs> this is the company stuff, so I don't know if I can switch. But Interesting. Yeah. I'd happily take a look at it, but I guess to, to explain what this is, um, when you're exporting these props like this, it'll actually um, export them out so you can consume, consume them. And what, what Brittany's talking about is if you do a glob import or whatever using Veep, on the end, you can put question mark raw, and when it comes in, it's, it's that context that comes through. So. Um, I don't and know it generates a props table very similar to that one that you yeah. had there with your props listed out. But it kind of does that automatically based on your types. And I think it uses JS doc types, I believe not types. And it's got like markdown built into it and everything else. So um, an example, like how we're using it, which again, this comes from Skeleton, but this is why I know this. I'm Black Cat. Um, if I go down to avatar, let's say, this is this is straight from our props. So anytime it gets updated, um, it pulls this out through Svelte, and we get this okay, listing. This is interesting. I, so I'm gonna have to check out from that. It's worth it's worth checking out. Just through that, just throw that out there. Yeah, I would be really interested to see how it would work with Reddit Svelte because our props are the way we define props is quite complex. 
-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I was kind of curious. Like maybe there's, I'm always looking for, maybe there's an advantage of doing it this way. I'm like, let's, let's check this out and and see. Very cool. Did you choose to build your props into objects like that? Or is that a convention that Radix uses? I mean, the, the way we define props into objects is only on the dots. The way we actually define the, uh, the props on each individual component is more normal svelte, uh, especially because uh, like the root svelte, it's, it's using normal props. It's exportlets, open, exportlet, disable. Yes. But because of TypeScript, we have some stuff that you would not normally use in a normal svelte project. Like there's a... There's uh, one thing that Svelte does, which is not in the normal docs. It's like type dollar dollar props. And that allows you to define uh, the props of your component in like yeah. a normal TypeScript type. But it's hard to define in normal Svelte. Like, let's say you wanted to allow 10 data attributes or 100, something like that, or even all data attributes like data. And then as you allow any string, after data. It's really hard to do that as well. It's impossible, actually, uh, because you would have need infinite export lets. So that's why we do it this, uh, this way. Also, let's say you want um, to have the that all your components have at least a prop called, I don't know, name. Let's say you want all your components to have the prop name. Instead of defining manually export let name in every each and one of them, can create one single type called base props, which is what we call it. And then you can do type dollar dollar props equals base props and something else, right? And you don't need to necessarily export that name again. You can just then on your component, if you use dollar uh, dollar rest props, you can get all props that weren't defined with export. That got a little wordy there and a little confusing, but yeah. I, I kind of see like where you're going. So do you use rest props or do you define a way to sh- make it more strict? You just use rest props. I use both. Yeah, I use both export lets and I use rest props too for like class and data attributes and some extra stuff. I Is there a case where you would not use rest props? I mean, only on specific props, uh, like if I want to export them, but Besides that, no, I'm sure that's probably like a good reason not to, maybe performance wise. I was wondering that too, because I've put rest props on everything just so that there's a lot of things that I don't account for on my component library side, and they may need to add for some other purpose in the regular app. And so I add rest props so that they're able to, everything will pass through into the component that they need for their side. So I just, I add rest props to everything. I was just wondering. I, I prefer to add, especially especially because like, it's, an, uh, it's a component library that's m- made to be super extended, right? So yes. if I limit it, that's kind of what's bad, right? How, how do you do classes? I'm kind of interested because it's not a styled library. So like, do you use the restprops.class and allow that to be passed from the outside or does it have a specific prop? No, I, yeah, I just let you pass in via class. Now, the curious thing is, what if you want scope styles using uh, Redix? That's, I mean, yeah. it's super easy to use table. You just pass in the class prop and that's it. But using scope styles is a little bit different. We do actually have some examples on the docs, and I do want to show 
I can ease, uh, have a guide for each component how to use it. But it's curious. But that's more a Svelte thing, not necessarily too much like a Radix file. Yeah. yeah. So scoped where the component would get that style all across your app rather than like you're using a component, you could use it in one place and add some classes and it would be different than another one. But what are we talking about with scoped styles? With scoped styles, I mostly mean, let's say you want to give, uh, you're creating your, your collapsible on top of Reddix Felt's collapsible and you want to give, I don't know, uh, the collapsible has a button and you want to give it a class called button and style it. But button yeah. is a super common uh, class thing, right? You don't want to style it everywhere. But components will work differently than elements. If inside a .svelte file, you give uh, something, a class button and then style it, it's going to be scoped to that element. If you do the same with the component and then you're passing the class inside the component to the elements and the component, the style won't be applied because it's not the, the way Svelte works is if you have an element with the class, it changes that class name, let's say, right? It does, it scopes tiny things, it gives it- uh, Gives you like a hash, yeah. Yeah, exactly. With components, no, it's literally only the class. It doesn't treat the class differently. So yeah. how do you scope it? Uh, let me find how I do it on Reddit Svelte. I, uh, let me see if I can find the component. Wait, Tuggo group. Uh, Alex, maybe could we find the, the Radix Felt docs. I think it's going to be clearer. Yes, no problem. Um, let me push the button again. Again? <laughs> I just, I just can't do it right. Oh, that's amazing. Um, so if you can go to Tuggle group for me. Yep. Yeah, and expand the code. You will see that I have a div class contents, uh, which is basically a Tailwind class just to apply display contents to that div. But on the style tag below, I do something interesting. I'm using a normal style uh, tag, which means uh, tags are scoped. But I do dot contents and then global toggle item. Why do I do that? If I only put a, uh, put global toggle, uh, toggle item, then any class called toggle item would be styled throughout the entire yes. app. But since contents is scoped, if I put that before, only the toggle item inside these contents will be styled. That is clever. Yeah. That is really this, clever. I love that. Yeah, this is the way I get uh, with styling these. And it's kind of the way Svelte does it too. Like if you put in a component, like um, the way Svelte goes around styling child components with CSS bars, right? This is the first class way they did it. So if inside a component you do dash dash and any name, it's going to pass in the CSS variable to the component. But what's actually happening is they're wrapping that component in a div with style display contents. And that's mm -hmm. that div has that CSS bar, right? It actually edits your markup a little bit, which is not something I'm super fan of, but at least it's there. It's it's something, uh, it, it's kind of smart at the same time. I didn't realize they're wrapping the div around everything like that. Yeah, they are. Interesting. It's yeah, going to lead to some consequences. I've never thought about it in this context, right? So um, part of the reason that we went to our own package for Black Cat UI and not Skeleton was naming collisions that I kept running into. And so instead of like contents, because this is a common phrase, 
everything on ours has BCU for Black Hat UI dash and then that name. So it gets a lot more specific for this stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I'll just put that nugget out there. It's something to, to think about because I, I tend to run into issues with this stuff when it's at that, like even at the contents level. So. I think this is a common thing that people run into with component libraries, design systems in general, and you will see a lot of them are prefixed with something. And mm-hmm. we do that at work too. I have mine prefixed with Fizz and I've had developers be like, oh, we hate using Fizz on everything. Like you have to prefix everything with Fizz. You have to write it out, but it's- There's a reason. So you don't run into these conflicts and you yeah. know what's coming from the design system and what isn't. Yep, Yeah. exactly. This is really cool, though. I, I wouldn't have thought about like pre-fixing pre- the global, however you want to say that. That's, that's really interesting. Cool. Yeah, it's something I do. This is something I also do sometimes like in projects of mine when I use like external components or something like that. It's pretty useful. We do a very similar thing at work, too, where we ship a scoped and an unscoped version of our um, style mm-hmm. library. And so one is... You have to have fizz styles as like a parent and then everything is inside of fizz styles and the other one is just unscoped and you can just use the styles but um it's like be wary don't use the unscoped version because we don't want that but we do okay. ship both of them just yeah what would the unscoped version like you want to use the button and it's not within the scope or something like you wouldn't have fizz styles on the top i don't know why you would want to use the unscoped i wasn't the like mind behind creating that and doing both of those but i've seen that before in the context of like similar to this headless ui where we have component definitions of like sizes and things like that that are uncolored and then in the scoping you actually have all the themed colored side of it but i've never seen i don't know that's interesting and i i don't really i think everything is included in both of them so i don't know what the use Uh, cases are but i think there are instances where they can use them that's cool nice what are what are we missing on the i I totally have a bullet point that we didn't touch because we started chatting about it beforehand. I said, whoa, let's save for this for the podcast. We were okay. talking about how you package these things. Yeah, that's what it. I was going to say. The stack, like what you use, what tools you use. I want to know all the things. I think yeah. I think this is a big part of it, right? Yeah, exactly. SvelteKit back, uh, package is this project's savior. So I remember seeing a Rich Harris talk uh, like way back, which is always great. Like. Uh, showing how SvelteKit is not only great for sites and apps, but also for packaging. And when doing Reddit Svelte, I looked into it. And at first, like when you think about doing a package and a, a company, uh, a company, uh, a doc site alongside it, mm-hmm. you think, okay, I'm going to use a mono repo or create like two separate uh, repositories, right? Uh, which is actually how we do it in Pink Design. We have a mono repo with turbo repo, which is great. But SvelteKit is actually really smart about it. With SvelteKit, you create a normal SvelteKit uh, project and, and create Svelte. It actually asks you if you want to create a package. Okay. And that's it. Everything inside the lib folder is packaged. When you do uh, npm run package or npm publish, it actually runs the package before. And everything outside lib is just ignored. You can do some fine tuning, some customization to change what's exported and whatnot. but it just works. It actually ships it with tight definitions. It just works out of the box amazingly. I haven't had tr- uh, much trouble with it. It's a dream come true because I really am bad with packaging uh, outside of Svelte. 
it is really a lifesaver and it's so simple. You just, like you said, like run the package command and it does all the type definitions for you, does all the pathing. So your aliases get like out to the relative path and it's so nice. The only hard, the only trouble I had was um, I have some internal stuff that I also want to ship out. For example, the resolved props type and popper, which is an internal component. I don't want to ship it under Radix file. I want to ship it under Radix file internal, right? Slash internal. Mm. And the way you do that is a bit harder. And I thought it was much harder than it actually is. It's actually all explained on the spell kit docs during the packaging. They say, hey, if you want to add some more export paths and stuff like that, you need to do this and that. And it shows you uh, what are the, the trade-offs of doing it one way versus the other. It's pretty great. I was actually wondering that I was poking around in the repo, uh, the Radix felt repo on GitHub. And I'm like, where is your index file that like exports all of your components, but you end up having two directories inside of your lib folder. So you have one for your components, you have one for your internal stuff and you ship both of them. And then you just define in your package.json, which ones go where, and that makes sense. Um, I'll touch a little bit. I won't take too much time here, but I ran into issues with the migration. So they moved from one to two, but now if you start like you're on two, it works really well. It uses your root package.json. It's really simple. Um, there's a spelt field in the exports command, but I was trying to install my component library in something in another app that was using Jest. And we have a really strange setup at work that uses a Rails backend. So they have a Webpack server that runs some Angular, some Jest stuff, and we have a Vite server. So I installed the component library and Jest was mad at me. Jest didn't like it. So I had to add a spelt field at the root of my package.json, not only in the exports field, and it pointed to my SRC lib directory that I wasn't shipping the index.js file in my SRC lib folder. That made just pass all the tests. Everything was fine after that. But then Vite started failing because it's like, oh, this file doesn't exist. I'm like, of course it doesn't exist because I'm not shipping it. <laughs> so what I ended up having to do is ship my source folder, my lib directory entirely, the uncompiled components and the packaged version that Spelt does and use the ones for Jest that are the compiled versions and then V needed the other ones there. I don't think they're being used. They're just there in the package so that V is happy and will build. I see. This is my fear. I fear that as the project gets more popular and I hope it gets more popular that I'm going to run into some user like, huh, this doesn't work in my super uh, unique configuration. Yeah. It, it is still like a very new thing. And we are in 1.0 with Spelt Kit and like things are kind of getting to that point, but there's a lot of issues that you just, they're nuanced and you don't really know until you find them. And everyone that I talked to, all the Spelt maintainers were like, why don't you use VTest? I don't have a choice. Like <laughs> if I did, I would switch, but I, I don't have that choice right now. So. Yeah. And to be honest, even VTest, which I love, uh, I had some troubles with it where actually I mean, we do have it installed in the product, but we don't use it for anything again. Uh, maybe some helper function. We are using Playwright for component tests because we also oh. ran into issues with that. So, some interesting really weird issues. Yeah. 
Yeah. So you do, do you do any unit testing at all on them or just? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we do. So the way we do testing components is we, so Playwright has, it's not like the normal Playwright where it opens a browser and so on. They have this experimental package called Playwright CT or something like that, where it's kind of like their unit tests for components, but using Playwright for it, which is kind of interesting. interesting. So yeah. yeah, we use, uh, in all components, we run X, which is something that tests uh, accessibility violations and stuff like that. It doesn't cover everything just because the test uh, pass with X doesn't mean your component is accessible, but still it helps us a lot. And then some more specific tests. Like if I open the collapsible, it should be open. Yeah. If I click the button, it should open, right? And stuff like that. And we do all that with Playwright. Awesome. I'm going to really have to look into Playwright. I have it installed, but I haven't set up any of the tests or anything yet, but I really, I've heard it's great for accessibility testing too, just to make sure that we're covering our bases there. Yeah, it's, it's pretty good. I really like it. Nice. Well, do you have any like generation commands? Just one last question. Um, I've heard of this library called Plop, and there's a few other things like NX will allow you to do some like generation commands that like give you this template basically. So like when you're creating a component, component you can just run that command, and it will create based on the folder name. It will create your component and all the files just like templated out. Yeah, I do. We do have that. Uh, I created one like. Uh, before creating the select component because it has like 10 subcomponents or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and I created one from scratch. I, I initially thought of using some, something to help me build out that uh, CLI too. But yeah, if anyone wants to contribute to Red, the Redix file and create a new component, you just need to uh, install the dependencies and then they can run like npm run create two points CMP. And then it's going to ask the name of the component if it's an internal component or not, and then the names of the subcomponents. And it does a lot of stuff. It creates the folder, it creates all the subcomponents already with all the props defined using base props, using rest props, using use actions. It already creates a, a documentation page already with all the, uh, already with a preview that shows nothing, obviously. Uh, it already creates the tests. It does a bunch of stuff. That is incredible. Yeah, thank you. It's all of that open source. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I might be looking at all of that in a little bit. It's here. not elegant source code, but it works. It's on on Redix Vault. If you go to like scripts, it's there. There are two. There's a script for release. There's a script for something that helps release, and then there's the create component GS file. I guess that is another question I have with releases too. Do you automate that? I don't know if I can because of the two FA on npm. Like you need that authentication code, and I. You can. Uh, I, I do also have I have two FA on everything I can, but you generate basically you generate an access token for NPM, right? It is a kind of a legacy token, more or less. Their newer tokens are a bit different, but it, it still works. The way I did it, uh, and I'm not sure if this is going to change, but it, since it's a component library, when uh, a contributor like ships a new component. I don't want to put it directly into main because it's not released yet. I want to test it yeah. out a little bit before. So I, that's why I have the develop branch, right? And what they do is everything is being merged to develop. When I want to release, I create a release branch, right? When I'm in the release branch, locally, I run a script called release. And what release does is 
uh, it generates a change log based on uh, an automatic change log based on the commits and, and auto pushes back to the release branch. It generates a git tag, like it automatically bumps to the new version. You can you can manually set the version, but if it's like only minor changes, it's going to bump to like 0.3.1 to 0.3.2. Anyways, it generates the version. You can also manually set the version after that is done um, and push to the release branch. I merge the release branch back into the valve. I create a release in GitHub with the new tag, with the new generated Git tag. Yeah, it's, it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> it's and with the new release generated, when I create the release in GitHub, it automatically creates the npm release. Hmm. So I have that all documented too on releases.md, uh, more or less. But basically, it's just create a new release branch, run the commands with whatever parameters, push to develop uh, release on npm. If everything is OK, then I, uh, I merge develop with main, just so it's everything on main again. So yeah. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. Um, I'll have to look into all of that and get that set up. It sounds like you've got a lot of automation that I, I kind of want set up there. I, I missed yeah. it. Was that all through like GitHub Actions at that point? Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. it's for our, with GitHub Actions. Yeah. Nice. Very cool. Cool. Okay. I promise. Uh we are <laughs> going to jump into perfect picks this time. Thomas, you might not have one, so think of one while we're we're going through. Uh because I forgot to tell him. Um, so, Brittany, your first pick is... Oh. I think it's my only pick, but we watched this show in maybe two days. Maybe It was maybe a couple more because we didn't have enough time, but it was so good. Um, it's, by the, it's written by the person that wrote Homeland and West Wing. So if you liked either of those shows, this would be very similar. And it went way too fast. And there's a cliffhanger. And they're not talking about making another season until next April. So I now have to wait a year to know what happens. <laughs> very, very sad. But it oh, was no. awesome. Now we don't want to watch it. There's a I know. it's That makes you not want to watch it. But it was really good. That's really cool. Uh, I just was on Compressed FM. And I did this for their what's, there's picks and plugs, right? Um, but this oh. thing's like changed my life. So it's always cold in my basement in Michigan. Um, we actually had snow again yesterday, which kind of oh. blew my mind. Um, but this thing, I never thought it would work. My hands are always freezing down here and my, I'm always typing, right? Like the majority of the day, but this thing is so radiant, like on my arms and everything. It's very incredible. So it's a, a warm desk pad or a desk heating pad, um, that it's just enough where I can lay my keyboard on it. By the way, I have I have my Mac keyboard, which is aluminum. That thing gets hot through it. <laughs> so it is actually warming like my fingers up too, which is fantastic. Uh, there's three settings on the one that I have and the top setting is ridiculously hot. Like I never use it. So um, if you have cold hands or you're in a cold area, please check this out. It's It's really sweet. Uh, my second pick we are using in the new version of codingcat.dev, once we actually release it, um, it's Flex Search, and it's like an in-memory search tool that is, it's mind-blowing to me, like how fast it is. So, uh, yeah. let me give an example. Uh, one click. When I come out here, I can type in, I don't know if Thomas was ever on. No. So let's do like just felt. 
like it brings everything up in memory in Svelte and it's contextual. So it, it pulls up anything we had in Svelte. Currently, I only have this set to do uh, titles and excerpts. Maybe I'll do the markdown thing with the search. I don't know. We'll see. So we'll keep playing around with it, but it's crazy fast. So very impressed with it. Has a lot of flexibility too. The more you dive into it, so I'm gonna have to look into that too for my new documentation site. Yeah, check out. Curiously enough, Flex Search has been used by SvelteKit on their docs too. If I'm not That's mistaken. where I stole it from. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, right. Did that give you enough time for a for a perfect pick? I mean, I hope so. I've been thinking about it. So I'm also going to I'm going to talk about also something that's pretty similar to Reddix file. But it's not as well, which is zagjs.com. It's basically also a headless UI stuff uh, for React, uh, View, and Solid. I think they're do building some spell stuff actually. And it's pretty interesting. It uses the components are not built in the way you think. Uh, you think. It's pretty interesting, built by the same uh, people over at Chakra UI, if anyone has heard uh, about that. Yeah. So I think it's pretty interesting. They're doing some great work. Um, and like for talking more movies and stuff like that, I don't know. I'm a, I really like movies, but I can't think of one right now. No, it's um, totally fine. This is a great pick. I haven't done yeah. state machine stuff since my master's degree, which was back in like 2008. So this is this is cool to check out. Yeah, they also have something called Arc, which is the actual components that they create on top of SecJS. So instead of doing use machine and stuff like that, as you see there. They actually export separate components too. That's amazing. I love yeah. it. Um, cool. Brittany had a back-to-back, -back, so she dropped off. So you'll get a thank you from me at least, Thomas. Um, yeah, for sure. No worries. She's she's super excited to have chat chatted with you too. She loves what you're doing for this felt community and everything going on out there too. So uh, love having you on. Can't wait to have you on again, Thomas. So really appreciate it. Yeah, I, I just have to thank you a lot. Uh, thank you and Brittany. It was great uh, being here. I had a really fun time. Thanks. Anytime. All right.